Well, I want to invite you to turn in a Bible or swipe on your phone to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that last week we started our series, as we do each year, in our core practices. Our core practices are how we intend to live our life with God together. Every church has their own version of these kinds of things. If you wanted to look on the screen or even on that wall there, you see that we began last week with following Jesus. Following Jesus is our language for loving God, and in particular, loving the God revealed in Jesus, to give our life to follow him as his disciples or apprentices, as we are with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. But to live like Jesus is to love. And so we move to the second core practice, which is our focus for this evening, love neighbor. One of the favorite and famous passages or interactions in the life of Jesus is when he was asked by the experts in the law, great job, by the way, Michelle, in talking to us about all 613 verses and versions and commandments of the Old Testament law, one of the favorite things for experts in that law is to try to distill it and say, what is the most important thing? What is the one that sums it all up? And so this was a common exercise. And so because Jesus was a respected teacher, they said, what's your take? And so you may know the story. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which was a famous verse, command, prayer from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was a prayer that they were supposed to pray every day as they left their house and as they came in their house. It was a prayer they prayed at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Every good Jewish person knew the words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then Jesus, DJJC, gives us a remix. And then he plucks a command from the book of Leviticus. And in that book, we find the command, love your neighbor as yourself. So then Jesus says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that begs the question, why are those two like one another? And you say, well, they have the word love. And I'll bring it even deeper to tell you that you cannot love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor in the same looking out, sacrificial, generous, forgiving, reconciling kind of love that you want for yourself unless you're connected to the source of love, unless you're loving God and being loved by God. One of the mantras that we have at the neighborhood church is this. The love of God is working in you when love of neighbor is flowing out of you. John will write in his first letter, how can you say you love the God you can't see when you run around hating people within your church community that you can see. It begs the question, if you are hating people habitually and consistently, are you really formed and transformed by the love of God that loves indiscriminately? You know that the love of God is working in you 
when love of neighbor is flowing out of you. I would say that Jesus said those are the greatest commandments because you can have the most perfect theology, but if you are not loving your neighbor, you truly aren't loving God. We love God by loving our neighbor. And because we love our neighbor, it shows that we have known something of the source. Well, when Jesus was interacting with the experts in the law, if you remember the story, after he said that two commandment remix and said, these are top dog, he said, well, who's my neighbor? Then he told a story. And that's another famous story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And so then Jesus poses the question after talking about how a man was beaten and left for dead, and one religious figure sees him and walks the other side, leaves him alone. Another religious figure sees him, walks the other side, leaves him alone. But then this person who was maligned and hated actually saw him, which is always the first step, and then moved with compassionate action to do something about his neighbor's situation. And so in the story that Jesus tells, he puts him on his own donkey, he brings him to the Motel 6, and he pays for his room, and he pays for the breakfast, and he pays for the Wi-Fi, and he makes sure that he's taken care of until he's well. And then Jesus poses the question back, who was a neighbor in the story? And the person who asked, who's my neighbor in the first place, has no choice but to say, that one guy that I hate. Now, he doesn't say that word, but he has to admit that it was the unexpected one. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the religious figure. It was the one that he did not want to love. The one that he didn't want to love was the one who showed love. And it threw his paradigm out of whack because if love of neighbor was flowing out of that guy, then maybe those people I hate can know the love of God as well. What Jesus was doing when he told that story is rezone our neighborhood. Because the man asked the question by basically wondering, where are the limits of my love? If I'm to love my neighbor as myself, then what's that list look like? Because I can love my wife, and I can love my kids. I can love my dog, and I can love my friends. But my literal neighbor that is always cooking something that smells weird, or my other neighbor whose dog is always getting out and wreaking havoc on my street, those neighbors are hard to love, so does my love extend to them? When Jesus tells the story, the person that they hated, who showed love, showed love to a stranger that he crossed on the street. So what Jesus does in his story, in his teaching, and in his action, is rezoned our neighborhood. Now everyone we encounter is a neighbor to be loved, not an enemy to be feared. Not an other to be marginalized. Not a person to be demonized. Not a person to be ostracized. You see, there's some kind of geography here. And religious people love to ignore or walk away. And as soon as we walk away, we say, that person is a little too in need, so I'd like to just draw my lines of love 
around here. And I'd like to zone my neighborhood of I'll love these people, not that person. And as soon as we do that, a page after page in the Gospels and in moment by moment in our life, Jesus takes those neat little tidy lines, he picks them up, and he stretches it as far as we can stretch it until no one is on the outside and everyone is included. That's what Jesus does in his teaching and in his life. And it's what he wants us to do when we love our neighbor. So our second core practice sounds like this. We commit to love others as ourselves, regardless of race, background, ethnicity, orientation, or status. And you say, well, I forgot this, or I forgot that. I would say, then add it. Because it's a way of saying we're committed to love others. Because if Jesus truly has rezoned our neighborhood, that means that everyone we encounter is a neighbor to be loved. And you say, well, what about my enemy? Jesus talked about that. And he said, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. So truly, the list could keep going. And then you say, well, my theology doesn't preclude my love of people of same-sex orientation sexually or a different kind of identity. And I would just tell you, okay, fine. But that does not absolve you of showing that person dignity and love and respect. So see the beginning of the core practice. We commit to love others as ourselves. Because Christians have this really great way of loving the kinds of people that feel good to love in service projects or to tweet about or Instagram about or the refugees over there. But when it comes and starts to encroach on our little gerrymandered neighborhood and they're right here in our proximity, that's where the rubber meets the road and that's where we need to practice what we preach and say, am I willing to love the person here? Not in theory, but in practice. Even when they're an enemy, even when they're an other, even when they're on the margin, because you find that Jesus routinely loves to go as far away as possible so that we might see the first core practice, follow him until we realize we're standing next to those that he loves, regardless of race, background, ethnicity, orientation, status, enemy, fill in the blank. God has one disposition toward the world, and it is one of love, sacrificial, reconciling love. And so we who follow Jesus have been formed and fueled by that love to the degree that we can go and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the practice. And because it's hard, it takes practice. So we turn to Mark chapter 2 to see how Jesus and some friends love a neighbor and it gets messy. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus has been preaching in different villages, and then he comes to his home base in Capernaum. This might blow your mind, but some people think that the next scene that takes place takes place at Jesus' house. <gasps> Jesus spent a lot of his life on the road, and he said, foxes have dens and this and that. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head, because for most of his public ministry, that's true. But some people believe that this took place at his house because it took place in his home base in Capernaum. So Jesus has been roaming the villages, and he comes back, 
enters Capernaum, and the people heard that he had come home. Verse 2. Imagine, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And so he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Verse 4. But since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's when DJ JC has the record scratch and he said, Have you seen this guy? He's paralyzed. Why aren't you talking about his sins? Here's why. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. I mean, you could probably read it on their face. So he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to just say to the paralyzed man, uh, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now you've got to imagine the crowd is leaning in, wondering what's going to happen. So Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So now he turns to the man, and, I, and he says, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. So he got up, he took his mat, and boy, this says walked out. I like to believe that this man strutted out, and he side-eyed those religious folk all the way out the door because Mark says, in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. One of my heroes is a woman named Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day was an author and an activist who founded something known as the Catholic Worker Movement. And she began many houses of hospitality. So this is in the 30s. This is post-Depression era. And there are millions of Americans that are unemployed. And when they're unemployed, they're out of options. And when they're out of options, they get depressed. And when they're depressed, some of them get addicted. And so then they lose their connections and now we have a lot of these roaming neighbors on the side of the road in need of help. So Dorothy Day and her co-conspirators form these houses of hospitality that create a soft place to land for these people who are unemployed and struggling. By this point, she becomes very famous because she was also a writer. There was a Catholic worker newspaper and if you were to go back and read some of her writings from almost 100 years ago, you would be shocked and scandalized because she was not this neat, right-wing-sounding evangelical person. She was hardcore, a person of the people, and she was also frowned upon by many religious folk. But they could not deny the fact that she was really, actually loving their neighbor. 
And so by this point, she's famous through her writings, through her charity, through her activism, through labor strikes and labor forces and these houses of hospitality. So the first time that a man named Robert Coles, who wrote a biography about her, the first day that Robert Coles met her, he walks into where she was at one of these houses of hospitality, and he said he saw her talking with an intoxicated old woman. And so he's politely standing there as they carry on chit-chatting back and forth and back and forth, and Dorothy Day keeping eye contact, listening intently, having this back and forth. And then finally it gets to a point where she has to acknowledge the man politely standing to the side. And so he said he will never forget what happened next. Dorothy looked up at Robert Coles waiting patiently and asked, uh, were you wanting to talk to one of us? And she did it completely deadpan, completely straight, because as famous as she was, she didn't assume that she was more important than her neighbor. She literally thought, as she was standing there talking with this intoxicated older woman, that the man who was politely waiting to interview her and write a book about her might be just as interested in speaking to this woman who was struggling as the famous Dorothy Day. Because Dorothy Day had a practice. And Dorothy Day's practice was to see Jesus in the face of every person she met. You can't run from this. You can't escape this. This bleeds its way into every single one of her writings. She wants to see in the face of an intoxicated older woman or in the face of all of you, the face of Jesus. So she says this in her book, House of Hospitality, which is a collection of writings over a period of five years birthed out of those houses of hospitality. She says, my prayer from day to day is that God would so enlarge my heart that I will see you all and live with you all in his love. Her practice started not with her hands to love in generosity or to love in sacrifice and action, her practice of love started with vision. She made a firm commitment to see in the poor Jesus. To see in the rich Jesus. To see in the proud, arrogant, death threat riding person Jesus, however obscured and buried. And that's what led her to be in consideration of a saint today from the Catholic Church. So if our action begins with vision, let us ask the question, who do we see as we come back to our story with Jesus at a house with some religious folk and some destructive folk? Who do we see? Don't miss, first, that Mark's central conflict is surrounding, is this man forgivable? And does Jesus have the authority to say you're forgiven? 
Mark is highlighting this central conflict. Does Jesus have the right to extend the invitation of God and declare them welcomed? God is holy. God is invisible. God is Yahweh, I am that I am, revealed to Moses, codified in the 613 commandments. We've been doing this for generations so that we know who's in and who's out. And if you're out, here's how you get back in. You take the ritual bath, you do the sacrifice, you go present yourself to the priest, and then the priest says, you've done it, and on behalf of God, I say, you're forgiven. Jesus is sitting there teaching, his roof opens up, the drywall starts to filter down, this paralyzed man gets plopped before him, and the first thing out of his mouth, as everyone in the crowd has question marks over their head going, what just happened? Jesus says, hey, son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious folks said, he didn't take the bath, he didn't do the sacrifice, he didn't go to the temple where the priest is, he didn't see the priest, he didn't do all the things. Who does Jesus think he is extending the invitation of God to say, you're forgiven, welcome home. Don't miss, because I'm going to talk a lot about the mat and a lot about the people in the house. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is so bold that he is a walking, talking invitation saying to the world, RSVP to forgiveness and freedom, look no further. You can skip the bath. You can sip the sacrifice. I'll bathe you. I'm the sacrifice. Come to me. Don't miss it. To miss that is to miss the central conflict of which the paralyzed man and his friends are pieces. But the reason that this is so important is because what Jesus does is holistic. You see, when a paralyzed man plops down in front of somebody in those days, you probably know this because it comes up in other parts of the gospel stories. Hey, this blind guy, Jesus, who sinned? This guy or his parents? Because bad things only happen to bad people, right? Then Jesus, in that story where they say, who sinned? He said, neither, you've missed the point. When the paralyzed man gets thumped down from the roof, because you know it wasn't gracious, <laughs> you know he didn't stick the landing. They didn't have like a, 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 like a, what's it called? Like a, a pulley. You know they didn't fashion a pulley, man. Donk. This paralyzed guy is standing there. You know that you know that you know that the people are sitting there going. I see this man's condition. Listen. Therefore, I know this man's character. That homeless guy, that homeless woman, those people in our city selling flowers, Whatever condition it is that got them there must be because of their character. We look back at these gospel stories and say, how dare they believe that? Wow, who sinned? Hmm. And yet we encounter people every day like a far cry from Dorothy Day, and we don't see the image of God buried within them. We see a sinner. 
So it's a holistic healing because the first thing out of his mouth is, hey, you're forgiven. Some people might say, I forgive you for jacking up my roof. But you missed that. Because the religious people knew that there was something deeper at work. That's why they got so mad. It's holistic because there's a social restoration that's happening. This is another thing that Jesus loves to do when he encounters neighbors that are on the margins and they're ostracized. The woman with the bleeding, nobody wanted to deal with her. Nobody wanted to touch her. And then she just sneaks up behind him and she touches the hem of his garment. And he goes, who touched me? Not because Jesus is a jerk, but because Jesus wants everyone to shut up for a second and listen. Because the next thing out of his mouth is, daughter, your faith has healed you. A daughter is someone who belongs to the people of God, yet the woman for 12 years had to stay outside of the city. Jesus wanted everyone to hush so that she might be socially healed before she's even physically healed. What Jesus is up to here is a holistic healing. So what happens is there's a social restoration. Listen that then gets confirmed by the physical healing. Because it's super easy for me to say, Matt, your sins are forgiven, my dude. And you say, uh, thanks. Because you don't feel that different. But it is a wholly other experience to say, just so you know that God and I are in agreement, why don't you pick up your mat, paralyzed man, and walk on out of here? That's what's happening. The social restoration is confirmed by the physical restoration. And the social and physical healing disrupt the segregation of religious society. Because if you no longer have to go to the priest, and you no longer have to pay the temple tax, and you no longer have to make sure that these religious folks are at the top of the heap, then all of a sudden Jesus is rezoning the neighborhood. And then Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek, the mourning, the poor. Congratulations, you're within the geography of grace. So a picture starts to emerge of Jesus in indiscriminate proximity to his neighbors. And you say, I'm in an indiscriminate proximity to my neighbors because I didn't choose who bought the house here or rents the apartment there. I didn't get to choose my neighbors. Okay, neither did Jesus. But Jesus takes it the step further. He actually engages with these randos, creating a geography of grace. The line forms to the left of all the people that no one touched that Jesus touched. The line forms to the left of all the people that Jesus talked to that no one would talk to. So Jesus is routinely surrounded by the poor and powerless, the disciples and the doubters, the sick and the suspicious, which tells me something between the lines about Jesus. People wanted to be near to him. What kind of person must he be that people felt comfortable to be right there with him in his house, to be right there at his feet? And it says something to Christians today are the kinds of people that loved to be near Jesus are those kinds of people 
comfortable with being near us in the church. Oops. There's another quote from Dorothy Day that I'm paraphrasing. It's not on the screen, but she says it's a terrifying thought to ask that I love God as much as the person I love the least. Because love of neighbor is flowing out of you if the love of God is working in you. And because the love of God is filling in fully in Jesus' person, what we see is a walking, talking invitation to the world. You're welcome. Come. You just have to RSVP. I'll give you another Dorothy Day quote that is on the screen. It was a Dorothy Day kind of week for me, y'all. She said, love casts out fear. So we have to get over the fear in order to get close enough to love them. Why do we keep showing up at the clothes closet? Why do we keep setting the table at the neighborhood table? Why do we keep bringing our kids with us? To situate ourselves within a geography of grace. Some of you might have explored or experimented with a rhythm of life. A rhythm of life is a fancy way of saying, like, here's how I want to arrange my life with God. That I want to read scripture daily. I want to pray daily. I want to worship weekly. I want to go on retreat. I want to serve. Rhythm of life. You with me? Stuff I do. I'm going to say out loud what I haven't said out loud to maybe anyone but Amy. I came to this sense of vocation a few years ago that I feel like part of my rhythm of life for me personally is that I feel like God is forming me in this season to the degree to which I stay close to the core. That may not be for you, but something about my trajectory and where he has me, and I'm not saying this in a braggy way or whatever at all. I wish it was not true <laughs> most days. But that's why I know it's formative for me. Because there's something about staying within the geography of those people that are hard for you to love that puts you in a position to say, God, I need help loving them. So I can core practice number two well enough, provided I core practice number one sufficiently enough. So the reason we keep doing this as a church is because it's about our formation. And there's this pastor, Jamie Coleman, who preached here like a million years ago. And he has an apartment ministry that uh, even met at The Rock for a season. Now they're at uh, back at Odelia and Forest. And he said these words that I never forgot. And he said, what it means is to expose yourself to people that you don't ordinarily interact with. And then once you have that exposure to how the other people live, and in his instance, in his case, it's refugees, he says, then you start to realize their needs, and so you move to the second phase, which is engagement. So what we've done is we, we go to these neighborhoods, and, and we say, what's going on? Who's here? What are their needs? And so then we engage. We say, okay, we'll do a clothes closet. 
And then we did a clothes closet, and we realized we're giving them stuff, but what's something we can do with them? Because they started to really get to know Carla, started to really get to know Toby and Jason and Becky and Courtney and all of these different people. And so we, we started to want to spend more time with them. We used to log their prayer requests, and they'd come back a month later and say, it, it's amazing, it's a miracle. God heard your prayer, and, and look. Or a month later, they would say, hey, remember when we prayed? I got bad news, that person actually passed, but thanks for caring. And so we started to have that engagement where we showed up and did a thing, but then we said, let's go to the third phase, and that is enmeshment. Jamie, when he said it, he said entanglement, but I like enmeshment better. Unless you're a counselor, because I feel like enmeshment is a negative term, but let's just say it's positive in that we're actually within each other's life. The reason we keep doing those things and saying love of neighbor is not so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, you know, we did a good thing and we fed 80 people. No, no, no. We do this so that we might be formed. We do this because we follow Jesus and the love of God is working in us as love of neighbor is flowing out of us. And we bring our kids because we want them to know that there's a big old world out there. And to love your neighbor as yourself means to love that person regardless of their race, ethnicity, orientation, background, or status. Who do we see? The religious leaders, thunk, when the paralyzed guy dropped down, they saw a sinner. That's who they saw. They were assuming his condition was a result of his character. Who do we see? The crowd, you might have missed this every time you've heard this passage preached. The crowd didn't see him at all. The crowd preferred instead to keep their seats in the church service. Did you catch that? Remember, they're all pressed in. They're all filling in the house. Some of them are sitting on the coffee table. Some of them got the cheap seats in the corner, and they got to stand up the whole time, and their back's hurting. But nobody dared move when the paralyzed man who really actively needed Jesus tried to get in. Nobody budged from the door. Nobody budged from the good seats because they were waiting and they got there first. And in their GA ticket, we paid the price because we waited outside of AT&T Stadium and we bought the Taylor Swift merch early. Sorry, sorry, I got confused. Um, they didn't want to give up those seats. The crowd is complicit because the religious people would prefer to stay in the religious service than to go where the needs are but we're called to love our neighbor. The friends, however, when they saw their way blocked by the religious people, they took matters into their own hands. You see, houses in those days were flat. They probably looked a lot like the adobe houses you see in New Mexico. And they had a flat roof. And the really, really nice ones had like a solid limestone cover. And it would be like a super nice patio deck up there. The more middle class and lower middle class would have beams and hard-pressed mud and hay. So when it says they dug through it, they dug through the mud and the hay. And there would have been a ladder up there because they still could have walked on it. It just wouldn't have been a nice patio. It would be the one that your neighbor that you are hard to love, you know, his DIY projects that you just look at and go, okay, here he goes again. And in Mark, we see that 
they literally are said to unroof the roof. And I just loved that phrase in Greek. We got to unroof this roof, bro. And so they unroof the roof and they put themselves in harm's way. They put themselves in a potential conflict. And they say, but we've got to try because to do nothing would yield nothing. So even if this gets us in hot water, at least we get our friend in the presence of Jesus. The friend sees someone, listen, worthy of love. Now what does Jesus see? You remember? Jesus saw what? You remember what we read? Jesus saw their faith. He didn't see the paralyzed man's faith. He saw their faith. Huh. They believed that Jesus could do something they couldn't. But they did what they could and they let God do what they can't. So that begs the final question as we round home. What do we do? My first full-time ministry job was as a young adult pastor at a large church at the time. And I had several hundred people in my, um, I don't know, ministry, which is a real dressed-up term for a 24-year-old. I mean, and so I had several hundred people and several classes and groups. And because I knew everything, because I just graduated seminary, and I knew that's how they were doing everything wrong. Um, I set to taking the world by force, and I started a recovery ministry, and pretty soon we had like a 100 people on a Monday night from a men's halfway house and a women's rehab. And you know what? I was 24, and I had a seminary degree, so you know what? I was well-equipped, well-equipped to you know, fix them all. And so I did what I could do, and it wasn't very good. And not only for that group, but for the 40s Sunday school class that really didn't know what to make of me either. And so keep lathering and rinsing and repeating, and I found myself burned out and super angry that... I was struggling in my own life and faith, and these people were struggling in their life and faith, and I couldn't seem to download the information or will them to that formation because I realized I couldn't even do it for myself. And so I sat down in the boss's office, our associate pastor, and he listened and he just said this, quit trying to be the Holy Spirit. Quit trying to be the Holy Spirit for all these people. That job's already taken. And you have shown you've done a pretty bad job at it. So fire yourself and quit trying to be the Holy Spirit. Just be present with them. I think that many times we see the breakdowns in our relationship. We see the brokenness in our neighborhoods as mountains that are too big to move. 
how can I will them to follow Jesus and make this ministry, quote unquote, successful and formative and fruitful? This is too big of a job. Jesus, do it. And if you don't, I will. But I think many times we see breakdowns in our relationships and brokenness in our neighborhood as mountains too big to move instead of seeing the corner that we're called to carry. Let me just tell you something I hope sounds like good news to you. You can't and don't have to fix everything. You can't fix it all. But you can, cor- you can carry a corner. You can't take whatever it is lying on the mat in front of you that's paralyzed, that's broken, that is desperately in need of restoration. You can't scoop that thing up, throw it over your shoulder, and do it yourself. But you can do what you can and let God do what you can't. That doesn't mean you don't do anything. That means you pick up your corner because it took four friends to carry that man. How much more would it take to get you out of the situation of brokenness that you find yourself in? It took four for him. How much does it take for you? Just one corner. Plus a lot of God and a lot of his community. But sometimes we're staring down the mountain. And instead of saying, I need to go climb it. God just calls us today to pick up our corner and love in the little ways and let him handle it in his own timing and in his own way. So I'll close with a song quote and some questions. There's a song called Little Things with Great Love that I really strongly encourage you to get out your phone, go on YouTube, and search The Porter's Gate, Little Things with Great Love. But make sure it's muted because I'm not done yet. (laughs) But listen to it on the way home. It is beautiful, and you will get misty-eyed like I did this afternoon while the girls were with me in the living room as we listened to these last two stanzas. Madison Cunningham of the Porter's Gate says, Oh, the deeds forgotten. Oh, the works unseen. Every drink of water flowing graciously. Every tender mercy you're making glorious because this you have asked us. Do little things with great love. Little things with great love. Then the music pulls down, and she says, At the table of our Savior, no mouth will go unsaid. His children in the shadows stream in and raise their heads. And then a cacophony of sound and strings starts to make this noise. And it's intentional because we live in a world full of noise, but we're called to pick up our corner. So she sings through the noise, oh, give us ears to hear them and give us eyes that see. For there is one who loves them, and I am his hands and feet. You can't move that mountain, but you can carry a corner. So in this season, who's on the map? What's on the map? What lies paralyzed and broken and in need of restoration and forgiveness and reconciliation? 
And probably it's hard for you to name it because you've been trying to carry it all on your own. So the second question is, what's your corner? I think you'll find that the corner is a little thing that done with great love can move what was impossible before. It's that everyday incremental giving of love that you've received to quiet your tongue instead of lashing back out. To sit before that meeting that you know is causing you great anxiety and to say, help me carry this and to tap in to the peace that passes all understanding. It's the offering of forgiveness when everything within you wants to retaliate. And the thing about forgiveness is that it doesn't change the past, but it certainly enlarges the future. And it makes a world of love possible. You don't have to forget, but we can move forward with great love as we commit to love others as ourselves, regardless of who they are or where we find them. And if they're on our map, may God give us the wisdom and grace to see where our corner is and to trust that you can carry that one over there and that you can carry that one over there and you can carry that one. And if you go and carry this one, then we can be a church that loves our neighbors as ourselves and starts to live up to our name this year in 2024 to be a church in the neighborhood, for the neighborhood, following Jesus together for God's kingdom right here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen and amen. May God enable us to see his precious image etched within every human we meet. May we receive with open hands the inexpressible love of God for our own selves and extend those same hands to those who long for such love. May the Spirit of God cleanse our hearts from hidden superiority, bigotry, and fear, and may our hearts be quick to repent in humility. May we be a community with the mind of Christ, relinquishing our power to give dignity to the weak, honoring those the world despises, and sacrificially loving others more than we love our own status or reputation. May our hearts reflect God's own heart for the foreigner, for people of color, for the poor, for the outsiders. May God establish us as his kingdom of priests who bless those the world has cursed and embrace them as we ourselves have been embraced in Christ. Go in peace.